Hello and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen. Hey folks, I wanted to tell you a couple things, man, just from the bottom of my heart. Number one is, is if you're interested in going to the DR, um, this is just an interest meeting right here following this service. It does not commit you to go. <laughs> so please know that if you're just even wanting to know anything about it, so maybe you could pray for it, so maybe that you could give toward it. Uh, there's lots of reasons you would want to attend that, but it'll be happening right here after the service. And then also, um, and the Lord's been laying this on my part for the past six months, and I've just simply failed to kind of follow through with it, but today... I'm choosing obedience, and I want to invite you into praying with me every Sunday morning at 8.30 in my office. And so if you go through these doors, uh, but really if you go around the back of the church here to the church offices, go in, that's what these are. Be praying back there at 8.30 every Sunday morning, and I would like to invite any and all that can. We'll pray from about 8.30 to 9. Uh, we'll pray walk the campus. We'll do all kinds of things to pray. But I just believe, man, that uh, the Lord's asked me to lead you to pray, and, and I just want to pray that God would just do great things in and through us on these mornings as we meet. Um, so that's uh, just some news. Um, I heard about a preacher, a preacher of the old school, uh, but he, he speaks as boldly as ever. He, he's not popular. Uh, the world is his parish. He travels every part of the globe, and he speaks in every language. This preacher visits the poor. He calls upon the rich. He preaches to people of every religion and no religion. The subject of his sermon, believe it or not, is always the same. <laughs> He's an eloquent preacher. He often stirs feelings where no other preacher could. And he brings tears to the eyes of those who would never, ever weep. His arguments are none that has ever been able to be refuted. And there's Never a heart that's remained unmoved by the force of his appeals. He shatters lives with his message. Most people I've come to find hate him, and everybody fears this preacher. You're probably wondering who this preacher is. This preacher is none other than death. Every tombstone is his pulpit. And every newspaper prints his sermon. And someday, beloved, every single one of you will listen to his preaching. Boy, that sounds doom. That's all doom and gloom. But you know what? For the born-again believer of Jesus Christ, death is not the end, but it's really the beginning of great things. Did you know that for the Christian, all the fear is of death is canceled by the hope that we have of a bodily resurrection. We've learned last week that when we go into the grave, we're going to come out on the other side with these new glorified bodies that are fit for heaven. Christ has given us victory over death. And this isn't a message that's new, even all the way back into our founding in our country. We were preaching these same messages. As a matter of fact, you go to Christ Church Cemetery, and you can read the epitaph written on the tomb of Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin composed his own epitaph to be written on his tombstone before he died. And here's what it says. 
The body of Franklin, printer, like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding, lies here food for worms. But the work will not be lost, for it will appear once more in a new and more elegant edition, revised and corrected by the author. See, that's the truth for the Christian church. And Paul, as we've been studying, has been looking at the resurrection from many different angles. And this morning, we're going to see that our text gives us really four ways that we can experience victory over death because of the resurrection. So I wonder if you'd turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Believe it or not, we will finish chapter 15 today. If the good Lord wills. We're going to be reading verses 50 through 58. 1 Corinthians 50 through 58, and if you don't have a copy of God's Word, hopefully you'll find one in the, under the seats kind of around you. You can look on with a friend, and it'll definitely be on the screen here behind me. But because this is when God speaks, this is when His Word is proclaimed, I want to ask you to stand in the honor of reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, never-returning-void Word. The Bible says this, Paul says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable in hell inherit the per- imperishable. Behold, I tell you what, church, a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be what? Changed, amen. In the moment, <laughs> in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable put, must put on the imperishable, And this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will put on immortality, then will come the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brother, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Here's the first thing we see this morning is that I can have victory by encountering a powerful transformation by Christ. I can have victory by encountering a powerful transformation by Christ. Verse 50, he says this. He says, and I'll say this, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. In other words, we can't go like we are. We must be transformed. We have to be different in order to live in the heavenly domain. We can't be like Adam. We must be like Christ. So back up in verse 49, he says, just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. So we have to be transformed. He says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That simply declares our physical bodies, this human and being thing that we have, this flesh and blood, this natural being cannot inherit the kingdom. And the idea of the kingdom here is not the kingdom of God in its universal sense, though the whole universe is the rule of God. It's not the kingdom of God in the spiritual sense, the reign of God in the heart. It's the kingdom of God in the consummate sense, the eternal state. And so he's saying that we cannot enter the kingdom eternally without bodies that are fit for the eternal kingdom. We have to be transformed. 
Remember last week, we talked about that new and glorious supernatural body that's the same in life principle, but different because it's fit now for heaven. Look back at verse 42 of the text. It says, last week we read, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, but it is raised an imperishable body. A big transformation takes place, right? Death, though, listen, death is what brings that transformation. We die, and just like that seed, when it dies, something new and beautiful comes out through that death. So to our bodies at the resurrection. Okay, so Paul's teaching this, and at this point, there must have been a question. That transformation takes place in the resurrection for people who die, but what about the people who don't die? I mean, are their bodies going to be transformed too? If Christ returns while they're alive, I mean, what happens to them? So verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. That answers the question that they're going to be changed as well. Because there's no way to dwell in the incorruptible, immortal kingdom of God in a mortal, corruptible body. We have to be changed. Some of us will be going into the ground and changed in the moment we come out of the grave. Others will be changed on the way up. Paul says he tells us a mystery. This may be news to you, but a mystery is not something you can't understand. A mystery, biblically speaking, is something you can now understand that you used to not understand. Mysterion is the New Testament to speak of that which was once revealed, uh, just hidden and has now been revealed. So what Paul is saying is, listen, I'm going to share with you something that used to be hidden. You wouldn't have been ready for it, but now you are. There will be a rapture. <laughs> And there's a good forerunner to that, right? Enoch and Elijah, because they just took off one day, right? They just walked right up into heaven and they got changed on the way up. They're kind of our preliminary examples of what's going to happen. So then somebody says, okay, so that, that takes care of that, Paul. But I mean, how is it going to happen? I mean, what, what's, how's this going to take place? So verse 52, he says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. It's going to happen in a moment. This is not going to be a process. And the Greek word for moment is atomos, which we get the word atom, which really in the Greek simply meant the smallest possible particle which cannot be divided. Literally, it means that which cannot be cut. In other words, in the smallest amount of time in which there can be no smaller amount of time, in that smallest amount of time, we will be changed. In the most finite unit of time, we will be changed. And it's going to be so fast, you won't even recognize that it's happened. In an atomos, the shortest possible time, which they have no shorter, you'll be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Now, it says there, in the twinkling of an eye, not the blinking of an eye. That's important to know. Because I did some research this past week and found some scientists who have kind of stumbled on this. One man said the twinkling of the eye is the time it takes for the light to go from the iris to the retina. And apparently some scientist has measured this, and he says the twinkling of an eye is one-sixth of a nanosecond. Now let's just have some fun, just so we all can pretend and play along here. You know what a second is, right? One one-thousand, that's a second. One one-thousand, that's a second. A microsecond is one millionth of a second. So one millionth of what I just said, one one thousand, one millionth of that is a nanosecond. I mean a microsecond. 
A nanosecond is one thousandth of one millionth of a second. That's a twinkling of an eye. That's what Paul says. That's why he uses the word something that cannot be split. It is the smallest amount of time possible, and it's going to happen to us just that fast. So we won't all die, but at the resurrection, the dead are going to rise, and we're going to rise, and we're all going to be changed, transformed really, really, really quickly. He says it's going to happen at the last trump. First Thessalonians, here you have the dead rising first, and they'll rise at the last trumpet. And there have been many scholars who've tried to figure out what this last trump is. And here's what I'm just going to tell you, in my humble but I think accurate opinion. This trumpet is the one that God uses to gather his people. We see God blowing trumpets to gather his people all throughout the scriptures. And when this last trump, the one that blows to gather all of God's people, the dead who are in Christ will rise first, and then those of us who are alive will be caught up, and we will encounter a powerful transformation on the way up, friends. I was reading an interesting article this past week in preparation for this sermon about the Civil War. I came across an old writer who said this. He said, during the Civil War, a regiment of soldiers was compelled to sleep in the open field one winter night. And in the early morning, the chaplain arose and saw a very strange sight. You see, during the night, several inches of snow had fallen and completely covered the tired, slumbering soldiers who were bundled under their blankets, thus causing the entire field to look like there were mounds of newly made graves. Then the bugler that morning sounded reveille, and almost instantly, a soldier came forth from each of those mounds. And the chaplain thought, the last trumpet shall sound. And the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we all shall be changed. Paul says, listen, that's exactly what's going to happen. Don't worry about those that are dead, and don't worry about those who are alive, because we're all coming up, and we're all going to be changed powerfully. Let me remind you of something. Whatever that last trumpet is, and, and whatever your views about the rapture are, we're not looking for an event, we're looking for somebody. We're looking for somebody. Because Titus 2.13 says it this way, we're looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what we're looking for. A lot of people can miss it, wonder about is it pre-rapture, is it post-millennial, is it going to happen then or there? And we're missing the point. It's all about Jesus. That's what we're going to be about. Don't worry about the time. Worry about the who. We're not looking for an event. We're looking for a person who will change us. But let's look at it from the other side, because here in 1 Corinthians, he's been talking about people who don't die. Well, how do they get changed if they don't go into the ground like the seed and die? So Paul says they're changed on the way up. And 1 Thessalonians, they had the other concern. They were concerned about people who had died. Well, the people who are who, who are dead, are they going to miss the rapture? I mean, you've got Paul saying, hey, we are alive, we'll be up there, the, the people who are dead. So, so we've got to cover it from both ends. So, so 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, dead, so that you will not grieve, as indeed the rest of mankind do, who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead, so also God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. For we say this to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive who remain, we be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we'll always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. 
Friends, this is Jesus' language. It's about the person of Jesus coming to get his own. And that covers both sides of the question. So if you're dead in Christ, you're going to come out of the grave with a glorified, transformed body. If you're alive in Christ, you're going to go up and get a glorified and transformed body on the way up. So why is this all necessary? Would be another logical question, verse 53. For this perishable must put on imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. You see, because without this kind of transformation, we cannot occupy the kingdom in this mortal corruptible frame. Paul says, hey, let me tell you a secret that something you've never known before. A whole generation of believers who will still be alive at the time of the resurrection in their natural bodies will be taken up in an instant and transformed into a glorified body without ever dying. That's the mystery that's been revealed. This is the victory of the resurrection. I can encounter a powerful transformation by Christ. Secondly, I can have victory by experiencing a permanent triumph of Christ. I can have victory by experiencing the permanent triumph of Christ. You see, when this transformation happens, something permanent also happens. And it's incredibly important that you pay attention to the order that this takes place. Verse 54, notice the order. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Notice the order. And Paul's quoting from Isaiah 25.8. Paul always uses Scripture to confirm what he's saying. So what he's saying is that when the transformation comes, then there's a triumph that can be proclaimed. When this transformation comes, when all those who are dead and all those who are not going to die, when death is finished, like with all it's going to do, then death, we know, has been swallowed up forever. The term to swallow has to do with total destruction, the end of something. Now, you know this right now. You know this. Death is still our enemy. Y'all know that. We may not fear it, but you know death still violates you. Death breaks loving relationships. It leaves things undone. Death steals our dreams. Death removes from us those whom we greatly love. But did you know that there's coming a time when death itself will be put to death? You know, there's coming a time when death will be swallowed up. It's even greater, though, than I think we can imagine. So let me help you understand what Paul is really saying through someone who said it better than I can. Linsky, a commentator, said it this way, death is not merely destroyed so that it can't do further harm while all the harm which it has brought on God's children remains. No. The tornado of death is not merely checked so that no additional homes are wrecked while those that are wrecked still lie in ruin. The destruction of death is far more intense. Death and all of its apparent victories are undone for God's children. What looks like a victory for death and a defeat for us when our bodies die and decay shall be utterly reversed so that death dies in absolute defeat and our bodies live again in absolute victory. In other words, listen very carefully. Death is not just defeated from doing any more harm. When death is finally swallowed up in victory, Everything that death did will be undone. That's a word. All that you've experienced because of loss, 
because of what death has done, the defeat, the discouragement, the despair, all that it'll be undone when Jesus swallows that bad boy up. That's a good word, folks. It's not that he just stops and there's no more death. Jesus actually undoes what death has done. Praise God, that's a good word. Verse 45, 55, Paul kind of, he's like, he's like flaunting this. <laughs> now knowing this, he's like, death, <laughs> where is your victory? I mean, death, where is your sting? This is a paraphrase from Hosea 13, 14. Where is your sting? The word is kentron in the Greek. It has to do with the sting of a bee, the stinger of a bee, or, or like removing the, the stinger out of a scorpion's tail. After that day when this transformation takes place, death has lost its stinger. <laughs> the stinger's removed. Frankly, for the Christian in the truest sense, when death plunged its stinger into Jesus Christ at the cross, it left its stinger there. And Christ bore the whole sting of death for us so that death has no sting for us. It's still an enemy and it buzzes around and makes you dodge a whole lot, but it can't sting you anymore. It left its stinger in Jesus Christ and it's been flopping around in the throes of death forever, but there's coming one day when Jesus will rise up and he's going to take the stinger out himself. No more to bother anyone again and to undo what it's already done. So then Paul goes on now to interpret it for us, the scriptures that he's just given us, you may not have known it, but like I told you, he's been quoting from the Old Testament. Death, where is your sting? And, and where is your victory? And he's been quoting from the Old Testament. And now like Paul always does, he's going to interpret for us what he's just quoted. So what do you mean, Paul? The, the, verse 56, the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. What do you mean, Paul? Well, the sting of death is sin. It's not death that harms us. You have to understand that. Death doesn't harm us. It invades our world, and we have to dodge it a little bit. We have to recover from what it does. But death will never bother you and me unless there's sin with it. You see, the sting of death is sin. Now, what that means is wherever there's sin... Death gives a fatal blow. But wherever sin has been paid for, forgiven, and removed, death has no sting. And so, on the behalf of a believer, there's no sting in death because the sting of death is sin, and sin, in the case of a Christian, has been removed. It's been forgiven. So all death can do is buzz around and annoy us a little bit, but it can't sting us because the sting of death is sin. And if you're a Christian, Jesus Christ bore all of your sin. He's already took the sting. If you're a Christian, he's forgiven all of your sin. If you're a Christian, there's not one single sin that can be imputed against you. If you're a Christian, the Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's no sin to be given an account for. God has simply forgiven it. He's buried it in the sea. He's removed it as far as the east is from the west. There's no sin for the Christian. So for the believer, there's no, there's no sin. Therefore, there's no sting in death. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't commit sins as a Christian. It simply means that when you do, they've already been covered and forgiven. They're already paid for. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. Death has already been killed once on your behalf. And death has already killed on your behalf, and who did it kill? It killed Christ. Therefore, 
its stinger has been removed. You know a bumblebee can only sting you once. If you're a Christian, that's good news, but if you're not a Christian in this room today, and there's sin in your life, then listen to me, you have death to fear. You have death to fear, friends. And you will taste of its sting. On the other hand, he says, though, that the power of sin is the law. The power of sin is the law. You see that what makes us sinners is that God has certain principles. And if God was up there saying, well, I don't really care what you do. You just do what you want to do. I don't really have any rules. Hey, just have a nice time playing on planet Earth. There wouldn't be any sin, would there? Because there aren't any rules. But God has said, this is right and this is wrong. This is right and this is wrong. And therefore, God has set up the standards that make sin a reality. And some in the audience would say, well, I don't know what those are. I've never read the Bible. Well, you don't need to read the Bible to be responsible for what God has put out there. Because God said that he's planted his word and his law on your heart. That's what it says in Romans 2. So where God has deposited his law in the heart of man, as well as the word of God, he's laid down rules. And it's against those rules that sin is now manifest. And once sin is manifest, then the sting is given to death. And the only way to eliminate the sting is to have that sin taken care of. That's why Jesus died. Jesus died in order for, to take you and for me. He took the sting for us. And if we put our faith in him, he's taken death's sting for us because he's taken sin from us. And even though we break the law, the penalty has been paid. So the power of sin is the law. And then sin becomes the, the sting of death. But Christ has fulfilled the law. Christ has paid the price for sin. So death's sting is removed in the case of a believer. So in Romans chapter 5, Paul says that where there was no law, sin was not imputed. Romans 7, Paul says that when sin came, then I died. So the law is God's standard that reveals our sin. The law is what makes us know that we can't keep the law. And the sin is the thing that gives death its sting. And by the way, the smallest sin gives death its sting. The smallest one. You don't have to be a criminal. The smallest sin, unforgiven, unaccounted for, unrepented of, that one simple small sin is enough to cause you to experience the fatal blow of death. But Paul says death is swallowed up forever for the one who has the promise of the resurrection in Christ. So listen to me. Encountering this powerful transformation for Christ leads to experiencing the permanent triumph that you and I will have forever in Christ because he's defeated even death itself. Triumph of life over death, the triumph of forgiveness of sins, the triumph of grace over law. Thirdly, this morning, Paul says it this way. I can have victory by expressing a personal thanksgiving to Christ. I can experience victory by expressing personal thanksgiving. Verse 57, he says this, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, you know this, you've heard this, I've said it, but let's say it again because Paul does. It's the Lord Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ only who pays for your sin. Did y'all hear that? It's Jesus and Jesus alone who pays for our sin. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who fulfilled the law. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who took care of the elements in 55 and 56. That sounds exactly like Romans chapter 7 verses 24 through 25. Paul says, wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from this body of death? 
Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Did y'all know that? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I cannot remove the sting of death myself. I can't do anything about the consequences of my violations of God's law. All I can do is thank God that Jesus Christ has given me the victory. That's all I can do. You see, if you're a sinner, and trust me, you are, there's only one way to eliminate sin, and that's through faith in Jesus Christ. And apart from that, death still has its sting, and you will die a death you never imagined possible. But the work of Christ satisfies the law's claims. The work of Christ paid the penalty for sin. It says in Galatians 3.13 that he became a curse for us when he took the curse of the law. So I love this. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory. Beloved, for the believer, death is nothing. Death is just simply leaving here and going there to be with Christ. Death is my spirit ascending into the presence of Jesus. There I get a new body to enter into his presence, and there forever I will be joined with him and everyone else who's trusted Christ. Death then becomes my friend because death has no sting, and I have a victory, and I give personal thanks to Jesus Christ. Personal thanks. I remember an old country preacher was challenged by this highly educated agnostic. This skeptic, this Gnostic said to this old country preacher, he said, why do you Christians constantly claim assurance of victory in the battle of eternity? And the old preacher replied, he said, well, son, it says in the beginning of my Bible that God was in charge when time started up. And he says, then I flips my Bible over to the end and it reads that God will be in charge when time runs down. He said, so I figured twixt the beginning and twixt the end, weren't nobody else that could whoop him. And folks, I'm telling you, our victory is in Jesus Christ because death itself couldn't whoop King Jesus. Listen, some of you are saying amen right now. And listen, I don't want us to miss what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, thanks be to Jesus. Thanks be to Jesus. Has God been good? So I wonder if our team would come up right now because we're going to do something that you may not be accustomed to. We're going to sing that last song, The Goodness of God. We're going to do it again because we're going to do the book. Paul said, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Is there anybody in the room today who would just say, thank you, Jesus, for saving me? Anybody in the house today? Thank you, Lord. Hey, why don't you just go before the Lord right now and just thank Him. Lord Jesus, thank You for saving me. Just do it right now. Go before God. Thank You, Lord God, for saving my soul. Thank You, Jesus, that there is no more death for me. Thank You, Jesus, for taking the sin, taking the sting out of death for me. Thank You. Do it right now. Would you go before Him and just thank Jesus for saving your soul? Connect with your Lord. But thanks be to God. Thank Him this morning. Thank Him this morning. I wonder right now, would you stand with me? We're not done yet, but would you stand with me and let's sing this song from the bottom of our heart saying, it's truly, it's been the goodness of God that He's been good to us and let's sing to Him with these thankful hearts that He's given us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's sing this song together. I love you, Lord. 
together. pray one more time. You pray to the Lord and just say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for giving me Jesus. Just connect with him right now. Just go to your Lord. 
and tell him thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, God, for Jesus Christ who gives us the victory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I want to leave you with one last thing, and I'm going to pull a fast one on you because Paul did. It's all lovey-dovey, right? We're all in the throes. And Paul, he's, 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 he's going to hit you. Because I want you to look in your Bibles, and I want you to see that last verse. Therefore. See, that's this fourth point. It says this, I can have victory by engaging a practical therefore in Christ. What's the therefore, therefore? Paul said, listen, all this doctrine and theology about this resurrection needs to be lived out practically. So he says there, he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Remember, this theology is not just to make us smarter, but it's to direct our lives. Thus, in the words of Francis Shaver, this is how we now shall then live. Based on what I've covered in verses 1 through 57, Paul says, therefore. Let me sum it up for you in two big ideas. And this, this old country preacher can just tell you the way I understand it. Paul says, if all this resurrectionist stuff is true, then we need to stand fast and work hard. We need to stand fast and work hard. You see, if the resurrection is true, and it is, then don't let people shove you around and make you think it isn't. Be steadfast, immovable in your commitment to that re reality. And number two, if there is a hereafter, if it's true there is an eternal kingdom, if it's true that, that, only, that, that what we do here now affects what will happen in, in the future, if it's true that, that everything here is passing away and everything is going to be about there, then it makes sense that we would do everything we can to store up stuff for there. So he says, stand fast and work hard. Jesus said, behold, I come quickly. My reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. Everything that you and I do has eternal consequences. Did you know that? So he says, be steadfast and immovable. That word steadfast is an adjective that means sitting. It means to take your seat fixed, settled, seated, firm, solid. Immovable is a most interesting word. It's the word in the Greek, kainos. It has a root word that means to be in motion. But then Paul puts a negative prefix upon it, and he says akinos, in other words, not to be in motion. But then he puts the meta prefix there in front of it. So he says ametakinos, which means to be super abounding and not moving. So it's not just don't move. It's like be super not moving. So he says, in other words, don't let your theology be like that of Ephesians 4.14, being children that are tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine. You have to settle this thing about the resurrection and then you sit on it and you stand on it and you don't move it. You put your feet on it. You're immovable and steadfast because the resurrection is a reality for you and you take your stand on that. Why? Because we've covered this before, beloved. If ever the doctrine of resurrection wavers, 
you'll abandon yourselves to living like the standards of this world. Because if there are no eternal consequences, you will lose your motivation to be holy. You know that and I do. So Paul says, stand on this. Don't, don't move away from this. Don't move. Be, be super abounding and not moving. And then he says, now that you know it's true and you're standing on it, you ought to work hard because that's what you believe is true. The word labor there means to work to the point of exhaustion. It's not just a typical word for work. It means to work to the point of exhaustion. It means to work so hard that you're literally weary. And how long are we supposed to do that? How often are we supposed to do it? He says always, and there's that word again, abounding. Not just, just doing it, but, but going after it above and beyond. Always abounding. That's an interesting work in the Greek. It means literally to overdo it. That's what Paul says. We should overdo it in things pertaining to the kingdom. Because that's how God did it with us. When Paul's talking about God giving us grace in Ephesians 1, he says that God not only gave us grace, but in the Greek it says God overdid it with grace. He expects you to overdo it working for the kingdom. If there's a reward and there is a kingdom there and it's all true, then you and I ought to just get about it. I mean, how can we then give ourselves to piddly things of this world that are going to fade away? What a word this is, beloved, for the thousands of Christians who work, pray, and give and suffer as little as possible. If that's what you do, if you just work as little in the church as you can, pray as little as you can, give as little as you can, and serve as, as few times as you possibly can, if that's you, you're missing what Paul's saying. Some people only give a little of themselves for the kingdom when they're in their working years, and then when they retire, they say, well, I'm going to take a little bit of time for me. And they hobby themselves right out of kingdom activities. Listen, folks, he didn't say you get to retire from this. He says, always abounding in the work of God. Always abounding, not just kind of like making it, not just kind of like doing what's necessary, but abounding in it. Or is that where you're at today? We've got to be abounding in this. Henry Martin went to India and said, now let me burn out for God. And he did before he was 35. David Brainerd went to the American Indians and was dead before he was 30 because he died of exhaustion. That's what it means. Am I ever going to retire? No. Somebody else might be in this pulpit, but Steve Brown will never retire from kingdom work. And neither should you. Because as long as there's breath in my lungs, there's souls to reach and there's ministries to accomplish, and I've got to be a part of it. You've got to be there. Listen, do you know we need you here? Do you know we need your money? We need your mind. We need your body. We need your soul. We need your capacities. We need your gifts. We need it all invested in the kingdom of God because that's what we're here for. Amen? So Paul's praise, like so often is the case, ends with practicality. He says, hey, therefore, there's something practical about this, therefore. Resurrection's a fact. It's going to come, and it has tremendous implications. So then, because the band is here, I don't have to call them up. Y'all come on up, okay? Y'all been watching March Madness, I hope. 
kind of made me think of something else, though, sports-related. I remember reading a story about Badger Stadium in Madison, Wisconsin. The stadium was packed. And over 60,000 University of Wisconsin fans were watching their beloved team take a beating by Michigan State. Michigan State was destroying Wisconsin. And all 60,000 fans were there watching this. What seemed odd was that the score became more and more lopsided. Bursts of cheers kept coming from the people in the Wisconsin stands. Every time, every time it seemed that, that Michigan State scored, the Wisconsin fans would cheer. And people were like, what is going on? They began to wonder how strange it was that the people were cheering while their team was being pummeled. But see, as it turns out, 70 miles away from Badger Stadium, the Milwaukee Brewers were beating the St. Louis Cardinals in Game 3 of the World Series. And many of the Badger fans in the stands were listening on their portable radios, and every time their team was winning in the World Series, that's what they were cheering for. Let me tell you something. Here's what I've come to discover. I think that's a fairly accurate description of what's going on here. It might look like we're getting humbled here. But you turn on your radio because we've already won the World Series. Don't get discouraged. Don't get defeated here. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. You and I have the ultimate victory. It may look like we're getting pummeled, but you've got a lot to cheer about. I wonder if you'd stand to your feet this morning as we go to our time of invitation. We're going to talk about this victory in Jesus here in just a minute, sing about it. You know, I did a wedding here not too long ago for my precious daughter, Sarah. And I'll never forget standing here. And just looking at Sarah and Oscar. And Oscar seeing Sarah and all of her beauty and, and Sarah looking at Oscar and all his handsomeness and that day had finally arrived. But the thing that took my breath away was when I was back there with her and watching Oscar standing here see her for the first time. Y'all remember that day? Y'all remember when you saw your bride for the first time? That's what death is. That's just simply a door that we pass through to see our bride for the first time. That's what it is. Man, it's going to be awesome, amen? Can you wait? I can't wait. But you see, I also have to be fair. If you don't know Jesus Christ, death is a door out of your prison on the way to your execution. It's very different. Very different. So if you need the Lord Jesus Christ in your soul today to forgive you of your sin, all you have to do is just pray and say, Lord Jesus, I know that I have sinned against you. And I believe that you died for me. You took the penalty for me. You were buried and raised for me to give me life. And I, I beg you to have mercy and come into my life and make me alive. Make me new. And the moment you do that by faith, friends, everything changes. Let me pray for you, and then we'll sing and you come.
Lord God, today I pray that your message, God, would, would resonate in our hearts and that we could sing even now in this time of invitation about victory in Jesus. But if there is yet one, maybe by way of radio, maybe even online today, who doesn't know this victory, would today be that day, oh God, that you'd have mercy. And I pray it in Jesus' name.